Welcome to the MSU Press Podcast, where we talk about university press publishing with some of the authors, editors, and publishers who make it happen from the campus of Michigan State University. On today's episode, we're joined by Dr. Tryon Woods to discuss his book, Black Hood Against the Police Power, Punishment and Disavowal in the Post-Racial Era. Thanks for tuning in. Dr. Tryon Woods is Associate Professor of Crime and Justice Studies at the University of Massachusetts Dartmouth, where he teaches Black Studies and critical approaches to de-disciplining knowledge. In Black Hood Against the Police Power, Dr. Woods addresses the punishment of race and the disavowal of sexual violence central to the contemporary post-racial culture of politics. And I'm looking forward to discussing these issues today, as well as his important work as a teacher and community activist. Dr. Woods, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having me, Kurt. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited. And I want to start uh, by addressing a point that you raise in the preface of your book, which I think it's important for the two of us to acknowledge today as well, namely that we're two white men uh, about to embark on a discussion of race and racial politics in the U.S. Could you talk a little bit about how your perspective informs your scholarship and your activism and how you came to the project that became Black Hood Against the Police Power? Sure, yes. I actually kind of backed into doing crime and justice, policing, punishment, prison-related teaching and scholarship. I was working in HIV and AIDS prevention in New York City in the 90s, really just out of a commitment to sort of study and understand and contribute to social justice. But I kept getting confronted with seeing the people I was working with who were trying to deal with major life changes, whether it's disease status or addiction or violence in, the, in, the, in their domestic lives, but also getting tripped up repeatedly by policing and, and the criminal justice system. And I kept seeing how this would sort of set people back and was um, undermining the, the hard work that they've been doing as individuals and, as, and, and in their community to make positive changes. And so that kind of spurred me to want to understand where this sort of punishment um, regime, if you will, or punishment apparatus um, came from. And so that was the question that I took with me back to grad school. But even in, with that question, I was more thinking about it in terms of histories of punishment through race and class and sex, not so much through the criminal justice system itself. But I ended up, you know, compress the story a little bit, I ended up working in crime and justice studies related fields, and that's sort of been my primary teaching area. And so most of my students are students who are interested in prisons, interested in police, they, they watch cop shows, or they, they have family members who are work in law enforcement. So I was like, okay, that's what you're interested in. That's where your commitments are. What, how can we bridge this between what I'm thinking about and what, what I'm interested in? And that got me to this book project. This was not a dissertation research project at all. It sort of grew out of my teaching in the classroom and working with my students who were very much aware about problems like racial profiling and police brutality and mass incarceration, but didn't seem to have know how to gain traction on explaining those problems beyond the simple sort of trite explanations that, okay, uh, this is a problem of discrimination, or this is a problem of sort of prejudice run amok, or this is excessive force. And that seemed to be, we seem to be spinning our wheels. And so that's kind of one of the motivations for this work was sort of helping the students and in conversation with the students, how to frame the questions of punishment in a much more um, a broader way, but also a deeper way historically and 
stepping beyond the criminal justice system, which tends to kind of overwhelm and encompass all attempts to explain what's going on today. So that kind of led me to that. In terms of my position as a white man, that actually, I wrote that part in the preface out of, as a result of uh, some, uh, some anonymous reviewers of the early manuscript who said, well, who are you? Where, where, where are you in this? And that, there's a big, that's a, become a tradition in certain parts of um, certain scholarship, certain, certainly scholarship that's related to uh, the study of critical, critical studies of race, sex, and, and gender. And I had avoided that intentionally. I had sort of wanted this to not be in, inflected in any way by identity politics and the identitarianism that uh, sometimes uh, comes along with that. But I was checked on that. I mean, they, the readers were like, we need to know who you are in this because this, this, this helps us sort of make some sense or at least begin to enter into the, 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 the discussion that you're trying to frame. And so that's, that's how I frame that. That's, so that's what led me to frame my, my uh, or introduce myself and my position in that. It's, it's a difficult question, as you say, and you, I feel like I have this, I encounter myself thinking about this difficulty in my journal editing work, because I get a lot of articles um, about, you know, from a critical race studies perspective or um, doing work on black studies. And I always wonder what is the relationship between, you know, the ethos of the person producing this work and the kind of work that they're trying to do. And I think part of my confusion about that comes from the question that you raise in the subtitle of your book about the idea that it, we've somehow advanced into a post-racial culture. Mm -hmm. And so that there's a feeling like in a post-racial culture, it wouldn't be necessary for me to identify myself as a white person because we would be beyond that. Mm -hmm. And there's resistance to that idea from the opposite side that says, no, in fact, you should. Um, could you talk about the problem of post-racialism, how it's, how it's related to your work? Yeah, so to connect what I was saying a second ago to what you're asking now, I was, not, I was trying to not write myself into the book, not out of a concern of trying to create a post-racial text, if you will, but because I wanted to move our discussion of racism away from identity and experience and more into this understanding of structures, the way the society is structured and the way knowledge and ideas are built into so much of our culture. And that's how my take on post-racialism, I think is hopefully uh, will help be helpful to some people in, in trying to wade through this miasma that's created when people bring it up. So the idea is right that you are either, as you said, past race and so it's no longer a factor in people's lives or on the other hand, it's really just a shorthand for um, how do we cover up sort of covert race, racism just becomes more covert. And those sort of either or positions really force us into a dead end or a cul-de-sac where we are forced to first make the case, yes, racism exists. And then once we do that, we're forced into a situation where we have to explain that racism phenomena within already circumscribed terms. And for me, that process itself is very much the intention and the effect of post-racial discourse because the circumscribed terms have already cut off a history, in, for my purposes anyway, in my interest, a history of black radicalism and black freedom struggle that we can't even 
talk about when we're already circumscribed in these, in these very limited ways, talking about race. So for me, the post-racial culture of politics is a way of uh, framing the discussion about racism into, in terms of multiculturalism and diversity that makes it very difficult for you to make a claim of race consciousness that does not go along with sort of the coalition impulse. Right? You're, being, uh, you're undermining the process of multiculturalism if you say, look, black suffering and black uh, struggle is, is distinct and unique and has its own particular historical trajectory and thus its own particular uh, ethical standards that we need to pay attention to. When you make that kind of claim, which is the claims that were made throughout the 1960s in the civil rights and black power movements, those claims are very difficult to make these, these days because of first colorblindness and now post-racialism has already limited the scope of analysis so much that you're discouraged from making separate claims or comparative claims. Then you get dismissed as, oh, you're playing, you know, oppression Olympics, or you're making, you know, you know you're pitting, pitting one person's struggle against another, and that's counterproductive and undermining of the, of the cause at large. And really what happens there is that this is actually a historically consistent pattern where uh, black interests and black analysis continually get sub sublimated or subordinated into a larger sort of people of color or oppressed people or third world people analysis that may or may not actually have black people's interests at heart. And many of the activists and leaders coming out of the 1960s, for example, Kwame Ture and Charles Hamilton in the classic book, Black Power, uh, The Politics of Liberation, they were very clear about this. They're very clear that coalitions between black communities and non-black communities, whether it was labor or uh, other, or you know, feminist movement, other, other groups that are experiencing oppression of certain kinds, those kinds of coalitions end up, dis, end up as a disservice to black people. Black people's needs end up getting put to the back seat, if at all. And so this is what I'm drawing upon and what I'm trying to build on is, is that particular tradition of black studies and black thought that has been very um, suspicious of the requirement to join a coalition that may or may not serve the needs of the black community. And there's an interesting sort of twofold thing going on in your book where you're, where you're pushing back against the accepted terms of analysis, which you describe as circumscribing the debate. And that's a similar kind of move to the one you're describing black power activists and radicals making where they're saying, you know, it's not just that we want to participate in the society in the same way that we see others participating in the society, but in fact, it has to radically change, like that there's something structurally wrong with the system that you can't change by way of becoming a part of the system and taking on its terms and acting in its, in its fashion. Yeah. And that's a difficult thing to do to, to talk about that or to analyze that because we can only use the terms that we have. And so we constantly run up against the limits of those terms. I mean, in the, I think in the first chapter of the book, I sort of center that chapter around moving away from, from genealogy as a method, right? Genealogy has a, as popular since Foucault 
you know, popularized that method of historical analysis. And it's good, and for good reason, and there's a lot of uh, important insights that people are able to generate by doing genealogies of a particular set of power relations. My argument in this book is that that's, that genealogical work of, to, to do a genealogy of anti-blackness, which is what I'm interested in, is how does anti-blackness work to serve as sort of the basis, the basic glue holding our modern society together. A genealogy of that would be uh, a genealogy, would require us to understand blackness as something that it's not. Since the slave trade, blackness has been the negation of all of humanity. It's been the antithesis of that which is human and alive and socially, socially vibrant. And so to do a, so to do a genealogy of something that is an absence or that doesn't exist as such, or is meant to construe that which we are um, everything, everything that we're against, would be a very different kind of genealogical project. And I point to a couple. Uh, who we might say black studies scholars, um, poet M. Norbert C. Phillips, and a few others, Dion Brand, who are, are doing what we might recognize as genealogical projects, but they're not named as such. They're sort of anti-genealogies or the ungenealogy. So, I mean, that's one example of, of the need to try to think about how we could uh, recognize the limits of our own discourse and maybe intervene in that in somewhat, in, in a different way. But really, the issue of violence itself is, is something that sort of runs throughout the book as well, right? So Black Studies tradition is, particularly recently, there's been some critical innovations in Black Studies to talk about violence in terms of gratuitous violence versus contingent violence, violence that happens just because. Right? The modern world usually thinks about the experience of violence as something that happens to you because you did something wrong, right? So you transgress some law or some norm, and the violence is a punishment of some kind of reaction to you stepping out of line in some fashion, even if it's not warranted or even if it's excessive. But gratuitous violence is violence that happens just because you exist. And that's really the kind of violence and really the only kind of violence that explains uh, the world that the, slave, that the slave trade created. Right? Black people during the slave era, as well as today, are subjected to gratuitous violence, unlike everybody else who's subjected to contingent violence. So that's a way of, you know, we're still working with the terms that we have and the limitations that that, that imposes, but to name, to begin to uh, flex that, our, our common language enough to accommodate a radically different, a radically unique experience, a singular experience with violence, right? People who are subjected to violence, whether it's from the state or from other people, it, simply for existing as such, simply for existing as black. And that's, that's uh, I think, one small way, but I think a really imperative way that we need to sort of push our language, push our discourse. I wonder if we could keep pushing that, that thought about the distinction between um, contingent violence and gratuitous violence uh, into the question of policing, because the, the book orbits around this idea of policing and its relationship to violence and violence, you know, wrought against black people. Could you talk about wh what your perspective is on policing and, and how thinking about it is central to understanding the condition of, of black people today? 
Yeah, so one of the main goals of the book is to redefine how we understand policing. We think, when we think about policing, obviously we think first and foremost about the institution of law enforcement. And so I take, in the beginning, I take the reader through a couple sort of logic exercises, really. First, you know, we recognize that most of the crime and most of the harm caused in society is, comes from what's called white collar crime or state crime, not from so-called street crime. But we devote overwhelming majority of our resources and attention and fear towards street crime rather than so-called white collar and state crime, that which harms us the most. So we have what I call a justice contradiction, right? There's a contradiction between what we're afraid of and what we, what's actually harming us, what we are investing our resources in versus where, where the source of harm and injury really comes, comes from. That tells us that we have a policing problem, not a crime problem. So right off the bat, we have to move away from thinking about policing as a response to crime and criminal behavior. And this is something that you know, most people who, are, who spend a little time studying uh, policing fully well recognize that crime is a reflection of police behavior, not of actual criminal behavior or lawbreaking. So if we have a policing problem, then we have to ask about the content of that policing problem. And it's a cultural phenomenon. It's a cultural and structural phenomenon rather than a, one of, a function of political economy or a legal, legal function. And so then we ask, what's the cultural content of that policing function? If people are being policed, not for what they do, but for who they are, then we have to quickly go into the context of slavery because slavery is the original at least in terms of the formation of the modern world, the original sort of institution that punished people for who they are, not for what they did, right? Africans did nothing to cause the slave trade to come upon them. And so right off the bat, we're already thinking about policing in a different direction. The other problem, though, is that we tend to think about the problems of police, the problems of policing as coming from the police, from law enforcement. But really, it comes from someplace else. The police are really just a manifestation or an appendage of power that's located elsewhere in the social body. So one way to think about it is for hundreds of years, right, beginning with the slave trade all the way through the civil rights era, the primary policing function of the society was carried out by all white people against all black people. In fact, it was the duty and obligation of every white person to police every black person, whether they had some proprietary claim on that individual black person or not. And so the policing function, the anti-black policing function of society rested with society itself, everyday white folks. And it really wasn't until the last, uh, since the end of the civil rights period, right? So we're talking less than a century, just less than 75 years, where we've shifted that primary policing function away from everyday white folks to the state. In, in the form of law enforcement. So it's only been in their hands, it's only been in the police department's hands for a couple generations. And that should remind us that they're not acting, right, on some, you know, on behalf of the state or, you know, you know, elected officials. They're acting as deputies of society itself. And if that's the case, then the primary policing function is happening elsewhere in society as well. And so the book is attempting to get us to think about policing, so I call it the police power rather than policing itself. Think about the police power as resting within the wider society. 
And therefore the police function isn't what law enforcement is doing. It's what's happening in all these other areas of society, whether it's films, whether it's books, whether it's uh, policies that have nothing to do with criminal justice, like housing and education, all sorts of areas that don't name themselves as policing are in fact the primary function of the police power. Juanima Lubiana, who's a uh, black studies scholar who I've learned a lot from over the years, one of the early teachers of mine, not interpersonally, but I, I studied her work. She makes the point that power is most effective where it goes unnamed. And that's something that's always been, uh, I think that's one of the insights that kind of guided my, the formulation of my, uh, my work here, because I'm trying to name things that often escape the name policing. And once we can see that as a police function, our frames of thought, the way we're thinking about problems, the very questions we're asking, then we're tapping into how fundamental the police power is. I want to follow up on this because your discussion of the way in which the police power is an embodiment of society's mandate to police itself, you know, that the, that the institution of the police is um, a deputization of something that we're, that the culture is, is doing regardless of whether there's a, an actual named body that, you know, wears a badge and carries a gun and is out in the street. I think that made an essential connection for me in thinking about your book because it goes some distance to explain how we have to tackle these problems culturally, you know, as well as politically. That there that there's a reason to be thinking about the the occurrence of this stuff in music and in films and in the kind of culture that we consume, because that's where we think about you know how we're structuring what we take to be the police power. Um, so that it can then be enacted later on. And I was thinking a lot about the the role of social media in all of this and the degree to which so much of our social media content depends on the consumption of black bodies in some way. Every time there's a new police shooting that is in the media, we have the same sort of conversation that that repeats but it's all about policing and you see all of this sort of like everyone is suddenly a deputy now and trying to determine well was there aggression did this did this officer really have um you know a justified reason to fear for his life etc etc and it sort of fascinates me the degree to which those conversations just enact whatever kind of I would say primitive justice we have in mind without even getting to the justice system, you know, before anyone's even charged with anything, we've had a whole cultural conversation about what it is or what, you know, what didn't happen. And I think in most cases, it's something we never return to, you know, like the, you, you end up hearing six months later that the officer was acquitted. And in the meantime, three other things have happened or 15 or a hundred other things have happened. Um, and we don't come back to it. I wonder if you could say a little bit about the the role of media in the structure of the police power. Yeah, I mean, you said it when you said there's a primitive, uh, how you put it, but you use that word primitive. And that's really striking because I might have said a sort of originary or a prior, but it's, you, you put your, your the nail right on, your, the hammer right on that nail because that, that is the police function at work, right? What's happening in the adjudications of the criminal justice system, the court systems, 
matter and they matter a great deal and they of course they matter they mean everything to the people who are being processed through it and being affected directly by it and and by that we don't mean simply the the person who's been arrested but everybody in relationship to that person right family members and so forth the community right because this is a this is a social process not an individual process power is always social and relational not individual so you're absolutely right that the, the discussions that are happening and the way in which media imagery, for example, of police shootings, we have a vast archive now, right? We have a huge archive going back at least and prior, before this, but at least to the Rodney King beating in Los Angeles in 1991. And none of it, right, has made a dent in police impunity. And so really what's happening is the circulation of these imageries, as you said, serves the policing function itself. So it broadcasts which bodies are available to be used in certain ways, and it lets those people know that this is what can happen to you. It's a form of terror the way lynching was. So the, uh, the role of media, I mean, it's, it's not simply the case, as people say, that it's a tool that can be used in any number of ways, like a weapon, right? If you use it for good, it's great, you use it not, not it's not sim as simple as that because i use the term culture of politics and i get this from frank wilderson who's also been very instrumental in, in in teaching me about how to how to frame these kinds of questions about power and blackness and he uses the, the phrase culture of politics rather than cultural politics or politics of culture because the way in which we enter politics what we identify as political is already framed by culture and so there's a particular cultural paradigm that already delimits the kinds of questions and the kind of solutions that we look for when we identify a, a problem of power. And so lurking in the background of all these attempts to sort of curb police violence is the notion that it's an aberration, it's a departure, it's a deviation from some kind of uh, balanced or equitable norm or status quo. And we may have been a number of generations or maybe even a couple hundred years off of that norm. But uh, at some point there was a, a norm or a status quo or a peaceful, happy medium that we've fallen away from and we need to get back to. If only we can bring these folks in line. And that's just, doesn't, that's just not consistent with black history and with the instruction of, that black studies scholars have been imparting across the generations. And in the chapter I, where I focus more directly on the problem of policing, I go back to the slave trade and the formation of the Fourth Amendment and Constitution to show that the purpose of the Fourth Amendment was part of the process by which the revolutionaries, the slave revolutionaries, were controlled and contained. And so today, when we call upon the Fourth Amendment for protection or the Constitution or the law or any process therein, we're calling upon a process that has always been nothing but anti-black and nothing but a source of anti-black violence. And so media imagery and media discourse around these problems of power are already have to fit into this idea that we have a dem democracy and a democratic culture, but except for these moments of excess or breakdown in that system. And that's just, doesn't, just not consistent with black history, black historical struggle and with the lessons that Black study scholars across the generations have been trying to impart. You're listening to the MSU Press Podcast. I'm here with Dr. Tryon Woods, author of Black Hood Against the Police Power. 
So you you concluded with this idea that Black Studies scholars have been trying to say that the culture doesn't have a kind of originary equity that we could get back to, like a state of um, innocence where like we could have balanced representation and no one being demonized. That in fact the the inequality that you're talking about is built into the cultural system. Would your argument then be that that codifies in the justice system, like where we see the kind of bones of that is when it comes into the law, as you, as you sort of described with the Fourth Amendment, or um, when we see what happens to police officers who kill black people? Yeah, I mean, just I mean, just to be clear, black study, the black studies tradition is is diverse and full of its own contradictions, and so there isn't a, a unified or unitary voice about that and certainly there's that's one of the major debates across the generations and throughout the archives of black studies is how do we survive this mess and is it possible to you know integrate or assimilate or or reform or improve this particular house that we find ourselves in and there's and then there's those who have said well why would you want to be part of a burning house right and so there's there's been debates from all quarters that said yeah the criminal justice system and the law certainly exposes or is certainly one of the more spectacular ways in which we can see this fundamental anti-blackness built into our society. But it's really the spectacular aspects of that violence as, as in the criminal justice system, whether it's policing punishment or the court systems, it's really distracts as much as it exposes, right? So the problem with visibility is when it's so visible, like hyper-visible, it puts the rest of the things in the shadow or everything else recedes into, into the background. And partly what I'm trying to do in this book is bring that background to the foreground and make the case that yes, we should be thinking about the police, absolutely. And we should be thinking about mass incarceration, absolutely. But I'm also critical of the overemphasis on that, as well as critical on that as the mechanism by which we can gain access to something deeper. I think that's possible, but only if in the process of analyzing mass incarceration and, its, and the horrors that it's created, we change our analysis because we have to have a more, a broader analysis about the problems at work. When we look at popular culture, when we look at things like, uh, I talk about in one of the chapters about the documentary that Liz Garbus created about Nina Simone and what happened to Simone. This came out on Netflix a few years ago. It was very popular. I think it was nominated for an Oscar. This is a very, she's a very well-regarded documentarian and this film was very well-regarded. But the way in which she treats her subject is effectively to quarantine and control the liberation desires of black freedom struggle. And we see that in a couple of different ways. Her, her abuser, her rapist, her husband, is allowed to speak her truth for her. That seems like a very obvious no-no, particularly for a, you know, a validly feminist filmmaker. But there's also an um, attempt to modify Nina Simone's own analysis of the violence that her people have been subjected to and her embrace of self-defense. She makes it very clear that self-defense is an, an obvious move. You have to be able to defend yourself with arms when the society that you find yourself in treats your very existence as a hostile threat and backs that up with 
impunity. And that position on self-defense is on the one hand, entirely historically consistent across the black liberation struggle. Black people, including Malcolm X, including Martin Luther King, possessed weapons, defended their families in their homes because they had to. And a number of black studies scholars have shown that violence, in other words, the willingness to use violence in self-defense was the necessary requisite for nonviolence, right? So they went hand in hand and you were only able to be successful in the nonviolent realm if you were willing to use violence to defend yourself. And so that's historically consistent. And what Nina Simone was saying is no, it's no different than that. So why would this Garbus need to redefine and sort of re remodel her subject in that way? This is part of the post-racial culture of politics. You can't even ask why it would be that black people find it reasonable to defend themselves. And why would Nina Simone do that? If you don't see that as reasonable, then you just see her as crazy, which is eventually what Liz Garbus said in that movie. And this is how Nina Simone is often remembered. She just went crazy and nothing could be further from the truth. You know, there's a there's an anecdote in your book about a, a woman whose name I shamefully cannot recall at the moment, but who um, who killed her abuser in self-defense and then fled and was asked, you know, why did you flee? Yeah. Joan Little. Joan Little. Yeah. Yeah. And so she fled and they said, well, why did you flee? And she said, well, that's the only way I could even make a self-defense claim, because if I had been caught at the scene, I would not have been alive to make such a claim. And I think this is really touching on some of the the power of your argument in the Nina Simone example, because you're talking about an erasure at a cultural level of something that that is demonized at the individual and specific level very obviously. Like, well, we'll write that part of her history out and um, then, you know, she'll look like a sainted cultural figure that we can celebrate and sort of dismiss the oddities as crazy and in a way that then perpetuates the system for those who can, you know, who don't fit into that model. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about Lil Wayne, because, you know, there's a similar kind of thing going on in the case of Lil Wayne, who you who you deal with it at some length in the book. And it touches on an, an aspect of your argument that we haven't talked about yet, which is the role of sex and gender in your thinking. So you recount this grotesque appearance of uh, Wheezy F's on the Jimmy Kimmel program. Mm-hmm where he is asked to describe a sexual assault that he experienced. And it's made into this sort of rollicking, you know, boys club, good time. I mean, and, and it's really frightening. Like it, it, that such a thing just sort of is broadcast on national television without the blink of an eye. Yeah. Could you say a little bit about the question of masculinity or the relationship to gender more broadly, maybe through the lens of how Lil Wayne fits into your argument? Yeah. Okay. So in that chapter, I was sort of pushing myself to, that came out of, that chapter rose out of the sort of recognition that I needed to um, get myself up to speed and get versed in how popular culture plays, plays a role in the police power. And in order to do that, I had to really look at what a lot of people have been sort of an important aspect of black studies these days, which is in performance studies. And it's not just, it doesn't come out of black studies, but there is an aspect of um, really performance studies, the idea of performativity 
um, has really taken hold in a lot of different fields and is really influencing how we read history. It's influencing how we sort of think about politics in a lot of areas. And one of the things that I try to do in this chapter with Little Wayne is he's got that song, uh, Mrs. Officer. And when I first heard it on the radio many, many moons ago, I was like, wait a minute, did he just say Rodney King, baby, beat it like a cop? And nobody else, like, there was no pause. There was no, like, pause for the cause of any kind. It didn't ruffle any feathers. Like, that was not controversial one bit. And so I was like, well, why is that? How can that be an uncontroversial song? And how, the more I listen to it, how can that, in fact, be an apolitical song? can be basically just a party song, love song, booty song, however you want to put it. But it most definitely was not political. At least it wasn't intended to be. And so the more I thought about it and the more sort of uh, study I put into it, I realized that what's happening in there is, is an example of what the post-racial culture of politics forces Black art to do. It also is an example of what happens to our discourse about sexual violence. And in that song, he is mirroring the process that was played out on the Jimmy Kimmel show that you just re referenced in your question. He's talking about how I, as a, as a black man, can take control of the sexual violence of policing and use it to my advantage, right? He's calling the shots in that, in that song, supposedly. But in the process, what he's doing is he has to uh, hide hide and make invisible the actual ways that he as a black man is victimized sexually through policing on a routine basis. And that the violence of policing is fundamentally a sexually, sexual violence. And it's sexual violence not just because of uh, sexual, literal sexual assaults, but because of the consumption and desire for black bodies that policing requires. And the Jimmy Kimmel show is so evocative and instructive because it shows that black men can't be victims. They can't be victims. And at the same time, they can't be men because the white man, Jimmy Kimmel and his other white male guests, I can't remember who it was at the moment, who are laughing with him or laughing at him at his expense are connecting on the level of gender, right? As white men. And they are making it seem like the joke includes Lil Wayne as a man, but really, since we're at, what they're actually laughing about is his rape as a, as a minor, which they wouldn't be laughing about if they were talking about their own brothers, what they're really doing is making, making it clear to us that gender is something that only white people have. Because the slave trade established the definition of what it means to be human as what white people are, all the different categories of the human that modern Western society has created, such as gender, such as sexuality, all those different categorizations only, only apply to white people. Black people who are defined as the opposite of humanity are also simultaneously defined as the opposite of all those other categories as well. So they only have gender and sexuality in terms of deviance. So Little Wayne, right, in that moment becomes hyper, he, he, his sexuality is simply precocious. When in fact, we know that he was violated and they would have, they would have been able to acknowledge that if he wasn't, if he wasn't, uh, if he wasn't black. And people like Tommy Curry, who's a um, black studies professor who's done some, he's a philosopher, he's done some very important work 
on ma black masculinity. And I, I don't draw upon his work in this book, but I've been reading a lot of him since then. And he's been very clear that that's an example of how black men continue to be victimized routinely. And we think about sexual violence and rape as primarily a, an aspect of power, and sex is just the language through which that power is, is wielded, then it makes sense that the people who are positioned as more disempowered than anybody else, black people and particularly black males, that they would have higher rates of sexual victimization than even white women. And that's those statistics bear out. And that, but that's eye-opening because we tend to not think about it in that way. I wonder if we could push the, the Lil Wayne conversation a bit broader into the larger culture, because I can never figure out how, how one should read. You know, if you, if you listen, not, it's not just Mrs. Officer. You can listen to any uh, Lil Wayne mixtape and indeed, you know, a lot of trap music and rap music in general um, is about sexual prowess, enhanced male power and um, virtue by way of sexual conquest. How do you read that? Does, how, does that how does that cultural phenomenon fit alongside the, the notions of policing? In the general, we're speaking generally, there's two things at least happening, at, at least. One is Black artists taking, embracing the cultural role of the bad man or the, the, the outcast or the outlaw. And there's a long history in black culture of this, right? Going back into the blues and the blues man. And so this is a, um, this is a way of, you know, rejecting the norms placed upon black culture and particularly black males by the dominant society, by white slaveholding society. So yeah, you want to call me that? Well, I'm going to be the baddest of that, all right? And so that's what Little Wayne's doing. That's what you see throughout uh, hip hop, commercial hip hop in particular. On the other hand, right, that's an, that's an example of the post-racial culture of politics, which has effectively suppressed any expression of Black self-determination on its terms. And so there used to be a time, right, in the so-called golden era of rap and <laughs> before, right, where you had much more what we would call politically conscious rap music and hip-hop artists. And the reality is that that cultural expression has been repressed. That is the, the sort of aftermath of, of COINTELPRO, COINTELPRO being the counterintelligence program of the FBI that worked in the 1960s to suppress civil rights organizations and black power organizations like the Black Panther Party and, and others. And what it did in, is it left in its wake a void, right? A vacuum of leadership in the black community where all the leaders had been expelled from the country, they've been sent underground, they've been uh, put in jail, they've been assassinated. And uh, what left, was left behind was a, a community that was mobilized, that was, uh, consciousness had been raised and had been politicized to a certain degree, but didn't have, was faced with this kind of terror that was repressing the community as a whole and making it very difficult to move above ground. And so culture became one of, the, one of the few ways in which you could do that, right? And so hip hop comes out of that era and it comes out to express, right, this loss and express the analysis that wasn't able to take the form, a political form, and now takes a cultural form. But even that then gets repressed. And so what we have now is a hyper-commercialized and hyper-commodified 
uh, form of hip hop. Just generally speaking, it's not it's not all of hip hop, and people who who are committed to that will definitely take issue with this overgeneralization. But the the point is that we have very few commercially viable ways to express self determination, and so some of what you're referring to is that artists have to they have to perform what sells, and they have to and what sells is sex and violence, and particularly when it comes to blackness, those are the things that sell the most. So it is, on the one hand, it's a rejection. On the other hand, it's a co-optation and a commodification. You talk a lot about Afro-pessimism in the beginning of the book. I wonder if you could say a little bit about how that plays into your theoretical perspective or how you're, how you're doing the work that you're doing in the book. That also was something that I was not talking about in the early drafts of the manuscript at all. I was simply doing it. This is the way I, this is the way I saw it anyway. I was doing the analysis that was very much informed by people like Frank Wilderson, who's been identified and identifies himself as an Afro-pessimist. I wasn't calling attention to it as such and wasn't naming it as such. I didn't think that was necessary. I also was well aware of how the sort of knee-jerk reaction that a lot of people have, have had in the past five to 10 years since that really became a discourse or an identifiable sort of set of an analytics. Um, but again, some of the anonymous readers were like, this is what you're doing. You, should, you need to say that. You need to be honest about that. I wasn't trying to be dishonest. But in the introduction, I explained that what's called Afro-pessimism is not necessarily, it's, it's a misnomer. It's a misnomer for two reasons. One is because it, it uses the same name that was put on a much earlier discourse about Africa coming out of the colonial period. And that earlier Afro-pessimism among journalists of the West and policymakers of the West and NGOs was that Africa is never gonna amount to much. And the, the, the leadership vacuum that we see coming out of the colonial era is really gonna drag the co continent down. And so that's a racist and colonialist discourse about the limitations of African people and of black people in general. And so this recent or latest reiteration of that name or that label, Afro-pessimism, does something very different. The earlier one was pessimistic about black people. This current or this latest Afro-pessimism is pessimist about non-black people or about the non-black world or about the anti-black world. So what Frank Wilderson and Jared Sexton, among others, have have been showing is that uh, we need to rethink the very forms of discourse and structural analysis that we've been using, we've been taught to use, because what they're actually doing is causing us to uh, cut off some key moments in Black history from our analysis. They've taught us to segment slavery into the past rather than think about it as something that is an ongoing reality. It gets modified, it gets adapted, it gets redesigned to fit current exigencies, but it's very much still present. And the question is how? And one of the ways in which it's, it is present is by thinking about how non-Black society still gets a great deal of psychic value from using Blackness in particular ways. And so that's what, for me, was very instructive about the current Afro-pessimism. Again, pessimistic about non-Black society pessimistic about what a democracy means, right? We keep invoking that, but really what, what does it mean when it's based upon slaveholding culture? So for me, thinking about the future, thinking about prescriptions, thinking about 
So what do we do with this? It, I don't start from this pessimistic standpoint. I start from what for me is the, the only sort of analysis, analysis of the reality that's worth working on, which is the analysis provided to us by Black Freedom Struggle, which says, look, slavery redefined the world and that fundamental redivision is still very much alive and with us, right? When Du Bois talked about double consciousness, he was saying that in order to be American, I have to be, on the one hand, I'm American, on the other hand, I'm Negro, and those two things are all constantly at war with, themselves, with, with each other. Today, we would say that in order to be a human, you have to be anti-Black. That's essentially what he was saying in, those, in his terms at that time. And so that irreconcilable strivings, as he put it, is still very much with us. And we see it in lots of different ways. And so the, for me, the, it's not about being pessimistic about, about the future. It's about being soberly honest about the past and how that past continues to structure, structure the present. Because if we don't, we continue to lie to ourselves about where we're at, then yeah, the future isn't gonna be very bright. What does one do? as a as a member of this culture um you know the terms that we use now are allyship like how does one how is one in embody a good ally yeah i mean as you i'm sure would agree that's that's something that you have to answer everybody has to answer for themselves and i know for myself that's an ongoing process i mean i have i would have written this book differently uh if i wrote if i was if i had been able to write it 15 years ago, but also I've become a different person in the process of this, of the writing of it. And not just, not because of the writing of it, but because of the living. And part of that living has been trying to hold myself accountable to the things that I'm actually talking about in my own life. Early on, I, I learned that the black radical tradition and black, the black freedom struggle across the generations was where the truth of our reality lay and it doesn't explain everything but if you don't start there and you don't have that as part of uh part of what's informing and guiding your analysis or your understanding of 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 the world then you're missing something that's probably the most critical piece of it and so you have to include that in everything and so for my for my work that's that's something i bring to bear on everything i teach a class on human rights now and we spend the first half talking about the slave trade and how the concept of human rights grew out of slaveholding culture. And so then in the second half of the semester, we're looking at some contemporary problems like human trafficking and the International Criminal Court and various different things like that. And we're looking at human rights, not as the South, but really as another uh, gesture of anti-Blackness within this larger historical trajectory. And on the one hand, it's like, well, wait a minute, you're pulling all the, pulling the rug out and everything else that's on it. <laughs> so now we're in this bare stripped down room. What do we got? The reality is we have to strip that down in order to find out what we actually got, right? And I think hopefully we're gonna find some of that out now in this time of crisis and pandemic where people are forced to, to strip down some of the so the stuff that gets between human relations and get down to what really matters. And in terms of my personal life, it's an ongoing, it's an ongoing process. And one of the things that I've learned is that this might be, I stand by everything I've written, but it's, 
it's a process and it's unfinished. And most authors will say that, but I, I mean that uh, personally and emotionally. Like it's, on the one hand, I, it was kind of uh, the irony for me finishing the book. M many authors talk about the anticlimactic moment, right, when you finally finish it. But for me, it was also, it was also this uh, ironic, humbling moment. Not because of what I accomplished, but because of what now I'm much more aware of what I don't know and what I've yet to really become in my own, in, as a person. I've got that much more to work to do and I need to double down on that humility. And I think in, if I would say anything for anybody else, and that's not really, I've learned that's not my place to do, <laughs> but that would be for white people to double down on that humility. Yeah, I do want to ask one last question before we wrap, which is, where is the work taking you now? Are you uh, are you doing another book project? Are you um, finding most of the uh, expression in your teaching or? No, yeah, I have a book project I'm trying to wrap up with a colleague of mine who we've worked on some things together. We're working on a book about the African migrants in the Mediterranean right now. That's gotten a lot of attention for obvious reasons. And we're trying to bring the same kind of sort of framework that I use in this book on that situation. But then beyond that, I, the Black Hood book is, I envision as a trilogy. And so I have a, a, a black, second Black Hood book that deals with cinema. So it's Black Hood at large, the cinema, social death. And then the third one will be Black Hood on trial, the state of black self-defense, which will look more at uh, issues around law and discourses about law in the legal academy, but also in, in the larger society. So it's, it's, it's the teaching and the, and the writing, but I do have, do have some goals down the road that I hope to, hope to hit in, in, in time. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll look. I mean, I, I learned so much from your book, so I will definitely Good. Um, be looking forward Good. to, the, to the, the sequel to the second in the trilogy. Um, with that, I think we're just about out of time. So before we go, I just want to say thanks again so much to Dr. Tryon Woods for joining us today. Uh, as I said, I learned a lot from your book and I um, have taken, it feels strange to say I enjoyed this conversation because we talked about so many difficult things, but I, it has been um, really challenging and, and I feel productive to explore these ideas with you. Thank you. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. It's been an honor to be with you. Dr. Woods's book, Black Hood Against the Police Power, is available at msupress.org and other fine booksellers. You can find him online at tryonpwoods.wixsite.com slash mysite or follow the link in the podcast description. You can connect with the press on Facebook and at MSU Press on Twitter, or you can also find me at Kurt Milb. The MSU Press podcast is a joint production of MSU Press and the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University. Thanks to Daniel Trago, Madiha Bos, Dante Smith, Kyleen Cave, and the team at MSU Press for helping to produce this podcast. Our theme music is Coffee by Tambo. Thank you all so much for listening and never give up on books.